This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Whoa! Since we last spoke to you, we've had backlash from the Redskins pickup of Reuben Foster. Kareem Hunt was cut. Mike McCarthy was fired in Green Bay. Carolina Panthers can their defensive line coach, Bill Finovich. His office uh, officiating crew gave the Chargers an early Christmas present. Adrian Peterson tied Jim Brown for career rushing TDs with the longest run of his career. And at the age of 33, no less. And now, well, now, of course, we've got Urban Meyer. He's leaving Ohio State. Ron, how do we top that this week? Holy cow. Well, Clarky, that's easy. The Raiders actually beat somebody without John Gruden doing something stupid in the same game, like throwing a challenge flag when he couldn't challenge the play and then saying, I knew what I was doing all the time. That yeah, would sure. be news. <laughs> that would be news. But I tell you what, this isn't news because it's December. And, Goose Man, I mean, we've been down this road so many, many times before. I mean, it's the time of year when you see things you normally wouldn't, like, uh, for instance, Todd Gurley breaking through for a game-clinching touchdown, only a stop at the one and let himself be caught. I know because he's on my fantasy team. <laughs> yeah, that didn't bother me at all. That's the second time he's done that this season. It's smart football, run the clock in a close game. The only people that bothers, it seems, is the fantasy team owners, such as yourself. Yeah, but it's Should not took smart four football. Net, he never over. stops. It's not smart football when there's over two minutes left. And what they do, they let him score about 30 seconds later. Stupid. Run the clock, uh, didn't it? Run the clock. God. If there's no, if you're never a problem with scoring, that's what I always tell. Talk, never a problem with scoring. Well, guaranteed, uh, you're also going to hear some things on today's program that you normally would not, like Hall of Famer Bruce Matthews making a pitch for his brother Clay, who's one of the Hall's 25 classic 2019 semifinalists. We'll also hear from the NFL Network Scott Hansen, host of the Red Zone Channel, and from Hall of Fame voter Larry Michael of Washington on which Redskins most deserve to be in Canton. But that's not all. As you should know, Friday is December 7th. It's the 77th anniversary of the bombing of Pearl Harbor. And to recognize that event, we have former Tampa Bay and San Diego Chargers defense coordinator Tom Bass with us. And why, yes? Well, Tom was a kid on Oahu that morning when the Japanese attacked and he watched the planes as they flew in. <laughs> what better than an eyewitness to history? Wow, no kidding. No, no kidding. Yeah, and that was history, and it's going to be the 77th anniversary, as I said. Well, much to get to, and we will, right after this. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Okay, uh, guys, we referenced Kareem Hunt in our opening segment, and I want to get back to him now because now there's another video that has emerged, and this one's, I guess, of an alleged third incident involving the former Chiefs running back at a Kansas City nightclub last January, where, uh, at least reports say, a 37-year-old man suffered a broken rib and nose and said that Kareem Hunt was part of a group responsible. The video, Ron, of course, is compliments of TNC. <laughs> of course. I, I, I don't know about you, but if I were the league office, I think I'd outsource all my security to TMZ from now on, huh? Well, they could do that, or they could buy TMZ and pull the plug on it or turn it into NFL Films Gone Wild. <laughs> I like that. I like that. Yeah. Hey, Goose, listen, if nothing else, this shows a pattern of behavior of both 
by Kareem Hunt and TMZ in the NFL. I mean, uh, with Kareem Hunt, it's a repeat offender. To me, at his worst. And, and yes, I, I know he wasn't arrested. However, the same thing happened to Pac-Man Jones when he was with Tennessee. And he was suspended a year for violating the player conduct policy. So I guess I'm going to ask you, could you see that happening to Kareem Hunt next season? Yeah, Ezekiel Elliott got a contentious six-game suspension for his domestic issue. So that's the bar established by the NFL for the one-time offenders. But, but Hunt lied to his team about that incident, and then the other videos popped up. I don't think we'll be seeing Hunt again anytime soon. Certainly not in 2018 or 2019, but I think someone will sign him in 2020. Okay, well, let me ask you this, Goose, because you're our draft wizard. This can't have come as a surprise to the Chiefs, uh, much as Aaron Hernandez couldn't have come as a surprise to New England. So what's the lesson here, uh, and does this have an impact on how the Chiefs, or anyone else for that matter, operates in the future? Well, I think the lesson is for the player. You can't touch a woman. Simple as that. If and when you do, you forfeit your right to earn a living in professional sports. If you want to stop domestic abuse, make it a lifetime ban. That'll make all these guys think twice about punching, slapping, grabbing, or dragging a woman. Yeah, I I agree with you, Goose. And I also want to go back to uh, what you were talking about with Zeke Elliott, because I see where Jerry Jones, your Jerry Jones, says he's going to keep, quote, quote, unquote, a very close eye on the situation. Is that a closed eye or a close eye? (laughs) Well, that's a good question, Ron, because he says, quote, everyone has zero tolerance for domestic abuse, unquote. So, Ron, one question. If everyone has zero tolerance, then why did Jerry Jones, that would be Goose's Jerry Jones, sign Greg Hardy? And why did the Redskins claim Reuben Foster? Apparently everyone does not have zero tolerance. Well, you misunderstood the statement there. The NFL has zero tolerance for domestic violence, and they're tired of these young women violently abusing their players to the point where they are forced to retaliate in self-defense. As you can see from the video, Mr. Judge, of our man Hunt, he isn't really trying to kick the young lady as she lies on the ground. He's attempting to stomp out some termites and other buggies that were starting to approach her. He was actually trying to do the right thing. But you misunderstood. Sort of like the Rodney King tape. Who knew till we saw that that he was trying to kick them when they kept hitting him with that stick? Can't we <laughs> crazy. get a long goose? It is crazy. <laughs> crazy. Hey, every, crazy. Everyone has zero tolerance except that is the NFC East. <laughs> really? Yeah, yeah, yeah hey, let's hey, just exempt hey, that. Hey, Clark, can I go off the reservation for just a moment? Because I just, I just uh, 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 noticed something here. Did you guys hear that Brandon Browner, you remember Brandon Browner? Yeah, sure, I remember. Yes, sir. He just got sentenced to eight years in California State Prison after pleading no contest to attempted murder. Oh, that gives the Patriots two former employees who went to prison for murder or attempted murder. That's unbelievable. Yeah, he supposedly tried to murder a woman who I apparently he must have had some children with, it appears, because they're out. And I just heard that the Redskins signed him to a future contract. <laughs> <laughs> and, not, and not only did he try to, to, to kill her by wrapping her up in a rug... Oh, jeez. And asphyxiating her. Okay. He then stole a $20,000 Rolex watch from her, which I assume that's, perhaps he gave it to that's her. That's our Ron Borges with his police report. It's <laughs> unbelievable. <laughs> oh, it's unbelievable. God. Okay, well, Goose, Goose mentioned the Redskins, you know, and Goose, thank goodness you mentioned hail the, Redskins to the Redskins. Because speaking of them, yeah, hail to them. We're going to hear from Washington Hall of Fame voter Larry Michael soon. The team's president, by the way, Bruce Allen, defended the Reuben Foster move by saying there's another side to the story. Okay, Ron. 
What other side can there be, and why haven't we heard about it? Well, there is another side of the story. They need a young linebacker who is vicious and can run, and Foster is both of those. Uh, unfortunately, as the 49ers learned and the Redskins soon will, he can't outrun the law uh, as easy as he can blockers. But, hey, did I mention the Raiders have zero, uh, the Redskins have zero tolerance to not having young linebackers who can run? <laughs> All right. On the side of the story, what are you talking about? I mean, well, if in fact, Goose, there is another side, don't you think the Redskins should be wheeling that out immediately? I mean, all we've had so far publicly are comments that the teams Doug Williams made, and they went over so well, you had to walk them back and apologize. <laughs> well, you won't hear the other side until Foster actually steps on the field for the Redskins. Then the storyline will be Foster is misunderstood. He's not such a bad guy after all and deserves a second chance. But yep. don't hold your breath waiting for that other side in the meantime. Well, one other general question here, and Goose, I'll start with you. The, the league can say what it wants about how concerned it is about domestic violence, but how far really has it come since the Ray Rice incident? I mean, if there's no video involved, and there wasn't with Greg Hardy or Reuben Foster, there's a clear message here, and that message, it seems to me, is that talent trumps character, and that we're really more concerned about what this guy can do to the quarterback than what he does to some female we don't know. Well, in very few cases in the history of the NFL has character ever trumped talent. You can count those instances on one hand for the last half century. Lawrence Phillips showed us that. If you can play, my eyes are closed. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, that's the signal that our eyes are wide open and someone is about to make a Hall of Fame case, and that someone is our Ron Borges, who wrote this week on our website, wtalkoffamenetwork.com, about... Somebody our listeners certainly know something about, and we'll have no trouble, sorry, Goose, I hate to say this, getting into Canton. Ron, you want to tell us about him? Well, as you guys know, I'm not in general a big fan of this whole first ballot Hall of Famer uh, mania. Really? However, if there was ever a lock for first ballot Hall of Famer, it's Ed Reed, because he locked up more quarterbacks and locked down more defenses during his 13-year career than anyone in history. Nine-time Pro Bowler and eight-time All-Pro selection, Ed Reed may be the greatest free safety in NFL history. Certainly, he was one of the game's greatest disruptors, a force every opposing coach knew could single-handedly destroy their offense with one play. Patriots coach Bill Belichick once said of him, he's the best weak safety I've ever seen since I've been in the National Football League. He's outstanding at pretty much everything. The list goes on and on with him. It's just a question of pretty much anything he's out there for, he's good at. Now, it must be noted, this is the same Bill Belichick who once publicly uh, called a winless Cleveland Browns team uh, so formidable that I thought he was talking about Otto, Gra Otto Graham's uh, Cleveland Browns. But, uh, even though you take these pronouncements with a grain of salt, what you don't take with a grain of salt is what he actually said to Reed face-to-face -face in 2009 before a Patriot-Raven game at Gillette Stadium. It was caught on a video camera. He walked up and said, you're the best free safety that has ever played this game that I've seen. You're awesome, Bill Belichick. Well, he was awesome, and the Pro Football Hall of Fame is about awesomeness, and it's about production. While some numbers can be inflated like Tom Brady's footballs, Ed Reed's are not. What? He led the NFL in interceptions three times. He has 64 career interceptions, which ranks him sixth all-time, one ahead of Hall of Famer Ronnie Lott. His 1,590 interception return yards are a league record. His nine postseason interceptions ties the league record. He has the most multi-interception -inter games, 12 in history. He was a 2000s All-Decade selection, 2004 Defensive Player of the Year, and I I'm getting tired reading his damn resume. <laughs> when he retired, he scored. The, he had scored the fifth most non-offensive touchdowns in history with 13. He became the first player to return an interception, a block punt, a punt, and a fumble for a touchdown. To call Ed Reed a disruptor is like saying the Internet caused a few changes in our lives. As Bill Belichick once put it, he just go, does things that nobody else at that position does, or I don't know if they've ever done it. He's special. 
yes, he is special, so special. He seems to be one of the few who rightly deserve first ballot Hall of Fame distinction. And my idea of that is simple. Jim Brown, and you sit down. Nothing more needed. To which I say, Ed Reed, I'm done. Thanks, Ron. If, Ed, if Reed's the best free safety going, who's number two in that list? Boy, you know, that's that's a really tough one. Uh a lot of people like Ron Woodson. You know, look, I like Ronnie Lott, although he was, you know, he was a corner uh, a, a good period of the time. And you know, to me, you can't get better, do better than that. Ed Reed, Thanks, Ronnie, Ronnie Lott. But you know what? If you put a gun to my head, I think Kenny Easley over all of them because he killed people. Well, just my opinion, but I don't think Ed Reed needs any help with Canton. <laughs> but there are others who do, <laughs> including some Washington Redskins not named Ruben Foster, and we're going to hear about them right after this. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, the Washington Redskins could use some help these days, both on the field and in Canton, which is why we've invited Hall of Fame voter Larry Michael, who joined the Board of Selectors a year ago, to join us. Now, Larry's been in and around the team for years. He is not, and I repeat, not a candidate for quarterback in Washington and knows well from his experience trying to get Joe Jacoby into the hall how difficult the process really is. So he's here to give us his take on the best Redskins not in Canton as our year-long series comes to an end. And Larry, first things first. Who's number one on your list of deserving Redskins, and is it Jacoby or is it somebody else? Well, you know, I'm, I'm a little conflicted, but I have to say Joe Jacoby 100% just because of uh, what his story is and his, uh, you know, the skills he had and the impact he had on championship football teams. But, uh, you know, I grew up in Washington, D.C., and I grew up in an era where Larry Brown was just uh, the ultimate warrior. And, you know, his career didn't last long because of the way he played, uh, but very, very memorable. But i got to say Joe Jacoby to answer the question. And, um you know, I think that, you know, Joe has everything it takes to be a Hall of Famer. Uh, maybe one day, maybe one day as a senior candidate, he'll get in. So what did you learn from the, the class of 2018 process with Joe? And, and what determination do you make about his case going forward from what you heard then? Well, you know, one thing that really surprised me is as the, uh, as the voting uh, approached, I had the opportunity to talk to a lot of other Hall of Famers from his era. And, you know, a lot of stats, a lot of research was went into it. And, you know, all the great pass rushers, all the people he had to go against, uh, you know, including Lawrence Taylor, and you know, the list goes on and on. And it was a little bit of an eye-opening experience for me to, to hear them talk about him uh, and the way they felt about him and what they faced when they played Joe Jacoby. And the fact, obviously, the well-documented story, which is totally unique with the Redskins during that era, you know, three Super Bowls with three different quarterbacks, and the one constant was that offensive line. They had some other right. players as well. They had a good defense. It was more than just the Hogs. But, but on the offensive side, as the quarterbacks came and went, the offensive line really was the glue that held those championship teams together. So, you know, it was uh, really an eye-opening experience. And then again, you know, watching Jacoby as a player and knowing how he was kind of a selfless guy. He wasn't a guy that would self-promote at all. Zero self-promotion, of course. The Hogs as a group uh, became a big thing, but Jacoby was kind of the silent guy of that group. And uh, I think his play spoke for itself. And I think he's deserving, and it would be at the top of my list 
of, of some of the greats uh, who wore the uniform who aren't in. And, you know, again, there's so many players from so many teams that are deserving. Uh, this is a great hypothetical argument, uh, but, you know, Joe, I think, is deserving. Yeah, I don't disagree. Larry, uh, how, how and why has history in this committee forgotten Pat Fisher? That's a great question. That is really a great, great question. And we see Pat now and then. Pat is still around the D.C. area. And again, a guy that uh, if you were to see Pat Fisher now, you would say, wow, uh, he looks like a librarian. He looks like a, a professor. Uh, he's a small little man, but uh, he would always take the biggest assignment. And if you look in, you look at the numbers, you look at some of the interception numbers. He's right there with Aeneas Williams, Lombardi. He's right there among yeah, all the list in terms of interceptions, career interceptions, and he did it as the smallest guy on the field. He was the toughest guy on the field as well. I used to joke he would tear your eyeballs out to get the football. And, of course, different era back then when, you know, tearing eyeballs out, he might be able to get away with something like that. Nowadays, <laughs> uh, obviously, you can't, you can't come close to those things. But, you know, a guy just he played with such a passion. He, he was such a strong-willed person. If you look back in his, you know, his history in Nebraska as a punt returner and a kind of a scat back, you, you never would have guessed this guy would become a dominating player at his position, at his stature, the size of that man. And he's just a, I got to say, you know, he's probably what five eight, probably five eight, but he would check Harold Carmichael and he would just be right in his jock, and that's the way he played. And it's it's funny, you know, the years go by and players like that really do get forgotten, not only because of, you know, obviously there's a lot of competition to get into the Hall of Fame, but there's so many great players each year in the league. And, you know, we look ahead to this year's, you know, votes and, and some of the DBs that are on that list. And it's it's heavy in DBs. There's a lot of great DBs on this year's list. And Pat Fisher, as time goes by, uh, becomes forgotten. So hopefully one day uh, there's an opportunity for him to get into get into the Hall. Forgotten Redskin. Does the enshrinement of Terrell Davis help the candidacy of Larry Brown, or was his MVP days too long ago for this committee to remember? Well, I mean, I think the lack of a Super Bowl probably puts him in a different position, uh, a different category, but very similar in that, you know, a little bit more than a supernova career. I mean, Larry Brown was an NFL MVP. He was the first Redskin to ever rush for 1,000 yards, and and again, you're talking about a guy, and one thing we have in common with all these names, and I think it is it is common among all the Hall of Famers, is the passion they have for the game, uh, how they'll do whatever it takes to win. You know, obviously risking physical well-being, but also, you know, playing with a lot of different handicaps. And, you know, obviously the famous story of Larry Brown was he couldn't get off on the snap, and Vince Lombardi noticed, and he questioned whether he had hearing problems. And they fitted him with a hearing aid, and all of a sudden, he, he got off. And that was just a, a, a handicap that he probably just lived with, and it really never he had to deal with it. And no one ever tried to help him with it. And when that when that handicap that disability went away, he really flourished. And he's one of those guys again, and, and like like Terrell Davis, you know, you, you have to wonder what he would have done if he could have stayed healthy for his running back position. And we're seeing it here right now, a freak of nature in Adrian Peterson, who you know at his age to be able to do what he's still doing. Uh, is absolutely incredible. That is the aberration when it comes to the the lifespan of a running back. And Larry Brown, you, know, you can only wonder what could have been. And again, over the years, you get to know get to know guys like Larry Brown and know what he meant to a whole generation of people in this community because of the fearless way he played. You had to admire him, and he had a style about him 
Uh, obviously, those styles have changed, bell-bottom pants, long sideburns, and some of the suits he used to wear. But he's such a gentleman, and he is... Uh, he's a guy that, you know, obviously he has some great teammates and he has some great coaches, but he did it himself. He really, he, he gained every, I don't know, it was kind of trite. He had some blockers, but your, your favorite memories of him are trying to break tackles and trying to get those extra two, three yards. Yeah. Uh, he's the kind of guy that would never run out of bounds, never run out of bounds. And he played, he played till the tires were wore bald. And that's a guy that, you know, again, you look at the competition at running back nowadays, he's got a lot of great running backs. The style of the game has changed, even though the running back position, as we know, kind of been devalued over the years. Uh, but I think that's a good analogy, Davis and, and Brown, and I think that's brought up quite a bit. And again, you know, if you have a if you have a player that's worthy, maybe one day he can get get into where he rightfully belongs. Should have run, run out of bounds a few times. Maybe he would have played enough, played enough years to have gotten in the Hall of Fame. Someone had needed to speak and you know whisper to him, "Hey, do like Franco Harris did, run over there by the Gatorade." You know, it's, <laughs> it's a lot safer over there. Uh, you know, brief, you briefly mentioned Adrian Peterson, and he seems to be having a bit of a. Uh, resurrection of a sort uh, this season. Obviously, he's going to have some tremendous numbers, um, but he already does have. Uh, but what do you make of him this season, and uh, what do you think long-term of his uh, you know, just an incredible. It's incredible what we've witnessed with him this year. And if you've been, you know, obviously following this football team in, in training camp, you know, Geis, Darius Geis was the a hot topic, a lot of charisma, good-looking running back, second-round pick, and then first preseason game of the year on a pretty outstanding run, gone for the year, just boom, done. And when they talked about, I had a, actually had a chance to uh, meet Jamal Charles uh, when he came to the building. It's about big, good-looking running back. You know, maybe he's going to come in here and get a few carries. But you got these other guys on the team like Chris Thompson and Complete Bibbs and Byron Marshall. And Samaje P. Ryan, young guys, you know, you figure that they're going to ascend. Someone's going to get an opportunity, and that's going to be the way it goes. But just out of nowhere comes Adrian Peterson, and he's a very quiet guy. You really got to get to know him. Uh, he's not really, uh, to me, you guys might know him better. I've known him for this year. It took me a while to get to know him. And he's a real good teammate. The fact that he has Trent Williams on this team, and they're real close friends, uh, gave him a comfort level. And kind of like these two guys, had never thought they'd be able to play with each other, best of friends, and all of a sudden they're on the same team. But what he did, what he did in Philadelphia is another. Just you know, I I saw one of these things where they clock. You know, you got all these uh, what are they called? Next gen stats, right? Yeah, right. And they had a piece out there that like he was the fastest fastest play of last weekend was Adrian Peterson at like twenty point eight miles an hour on that run, and they weren't catching up. And at the end, he was going as strong at the end as he was. Uh, when he started, I mean, there was no let-up in, in his stride. I mean, absolutely mind-boggling what he can still do at that age. Mind-boggling. Quick question. we got about 45 seconds left here. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of talk about potential amnesty at the 100th anniversary. Uh, uh, do you see that as perhaps a hopeful possibility for somebody like Jacoby? Uh, and number one and number two, I know you've got a little inside information on uh, how some people stand on that. So what do you think about the amnesty idea? Well, you know, we had we had a bunch of the guys in town. Bobby Beathard got his ring uh, a couple weeks ago at halftime, and David Baker from the Hall of Fame was there. Joe Jacoby was there. Some of his teammates were there. Bobby Mitchell was there. Sonny was there. And even the specter of that, I mean, you know, to know that that group is part of what is called the abyss, 
I mean, just to have that word out there referring to a group of great football players, to have to classify them into a category uh, where it just seems like a lost cause, I think it would be a great thing. I think it would be a good way to to kind of write some of the years. And, of course, there's never a perfect year in the voting. Someone's going to get in. There's going to be a lot of people disappointed. I learned that last year, and everybody's deserving. But if there were a way, uh, again, on paper, that looks real good. I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you decide who it is, and I think I don't know how that vote takes place. But to be able to remove that 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 term, the abyss, from over top of these great players, to me, would be a great thing. Larry, we got to run, but thanks so much for the time, and see you at our next Hall of Fame meeting. Yeah, we'll see you guys soon enough. Yes, sir. Thanks. Thank, thanks. Larry. Remember Ty Law. All right, gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all take care. Forget the abyss. Remember Ty Law. <laughs> exactly. Before he's in the abyss. <laughs> Yeah. That was Hall of Fame voter Larry Michael of Washington. Up next is Hall of Famer Bruce Matthews. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, Bruce Matthews was more than a first-team all-decade guard in the 1990s. He's also a first-ballot Hall of Famer who hopes one day to be joined by his older brother, Clay, in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Bruce was in Trinity 2007, and Clay is a first-time semifinalist for the Hall's class of 2019. Bruce and Clay each played 19 seasons. Bruce with the Oilers and Titans, and Clay with the Browns and Falcons, and they represent three generations of NFL football. Their father, Clay Sr., played six seasons in the NFL with the 49ers. Bruce's son, Jake, currently plays for the Atlanta Falcons, while Clay's son, Clay III, plays for the Green Bay Packers. Of course, that is when he's not doing commercials with Aaron Rodgers. So we invited Bruce to talk about Brother Clay's Hall of Fame candidacy, and lucky for us and you, he said yes. Bruce, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on the show. Love talking about my brother, Clay. Let's have at it. Clay has been eligible for the Hall of Fame for 18 years, and this is his first trip to the semifinals. You played against your brother for so many years in the AFC Central. Does it surprise you that it's taken him this long for his candidacy to be addressed? Yeah, it, it really has. Um, my brother, Clay, when I played against him, it, it really was a treat for me. Um, every time we played against him, I think I played against him 23 times. You know, he always was a focal point on Wednesday mornings when the offense coordinator was installing um, the uh, the defense we were playing that week. And, you know, I, I think for sure he definitely deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. I think in a lot of ways his versatility has kind of hurt him, but uh, hopefully uh, guys are starting to see the light, and um, I'm trying to bring a little, shed a little light on that as well. You know, Rick mentioned uh, your, your days in the AFC Central. You played offense and he played defense. Uh, so for, I guess, 11 seasons, the two of you went at it uh, uh, twice a year. Uh, how much of a challenge was it playing against your older brother? You know, when you grow up as kids, obviously, you know, everybody wants to 
beat up there. Your older brother wants to beat you up, and your younger brother wants to give him a good one. Uh, was it fun? Was it misery? You know, once you became adults, what was it like playing against your brother? I loved it. I, I loved the old Brown Stadium, the old Dog Pound. I mean, I, I'd make it a point, uh, you know, pregame warm-up, they put the visiting team in the Dog Pound. And I'd make it a point to make sure the fans could read Matthews on the back. And, uh, you know, it was cool. He was a beloved player up in Cleveland, um, an outstanding player. And like I said earlier, he was so versatile. He could rush the passer. He could play over the tight end. He could play the run. He could, uh, for years, he didn't rush the passer because he was so good in coverage. He was the nickel linebacker. And um, like I said, uh, and stand out for linebackers, obviously, or sacks. And, you know, my brother rung up a bunch of sacks, but he could have had a lot more. But like I said, he was so versatile. He was he was doing all the dirty work um, that I think your, your well-rounded all-around linebackers can do. Did you guys ever have a moment where either you pancaked him or he pancaked you and you looked at each other and said, come on, man, I'm your brother. <laughs> Uh, we've had a few moments. I think the biggest, he beat me for a sack in 1986. That was kind of a low point for me. <laughs> but, but really for me, uh, he was five years older, obviously well-established in Cleveland. And I just love the fact that when you went out on the field, you know, this is back in the day when not everyone wore an NFL jersey, but there were, Clay Matthews, 57 pound surgeries all over the place. And there was a treat for me. And it really took me a few games. What was required of me to prepare to do what I needed to do. Because, you know, I, I always was a huge fan of his growing up. He was always my favorite player. And, for example, you know, we're playing the Browns, and I, I knew who all the players were. Brian Seif, you know, Chip Banks, who I had the opportunity to play with at SC, Tom Cousineau, Ozzie Newsom. So, as a fan of the game, it was really cool, but the fact that my brother's over there, and he's making plays, and um, and and really, you know, especially for me, those early years on the Oilers were kind of lean years, and to play against the Browns and your brother and have your family at those games, it really was a treat. You know, not on par with the Super Bowl, but it, it was a special time. We got to do it twice a year for a lot of years. Well, Bruce, as you mentioned, there was an obvious age difference of five years between you and Clay. But was it competitive in any way between the two of you growing up? Or, or was Clay just out there ahead of you setting a ridiculously sort of high bar as an All-American at Southern Cal in a first-round draft pick? Yeah, he, he definitely set the bar high. But it was really – I tried to copy whatever he did. And it, it's funny, we both played 19 years. Um, I always figured hey, if my brother's still playing in the league, then obviously – I got to strive for that number as well. But uh, growing up, we competed all the time. Uh, like, we play one on one basketball, and uh, he'd always kind of let me get to nine points, and 10 points would be a winner. 
then he turned the screws and kind of slammed the door, so I never really beat him. But, uh, yeah, he, he set an amazing example for me. And, um, you know, I, I really believe, um, especially after talking to a lot of the other Hall of Famers and guys who played against Clay and saw him compete, and, um, you know, it's obviously very personal with me, and I think he should be in. But, man, so many guys give me so much great feedback about what a great player he was, his versatility, and they think he should be in as well. Hey, isn't that the job of older brothers to turn the screws? My older brother did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, it was all fun and games still. uh I got close to winning, and uh, yeah, exactly. Always, I get a you know a forearm in the back and get launched. Of course, you know there's no fouls or anything called, but uh, of hey, part of the deal. Part of the deal. Now, now you two, uh, um, you know, both went to USC, of course, but you didn't get to play together there. Uh, then, when you get into the NFL, eventually in the '90s, and the free agency uh, came about, did the two of you ever talk about the possibility of playing together somehow on the same team, uh, one of you or, or the other, uh, moving in free agency? Yeah. Um, in fact, we played in a couple Pro Bowls. We were both on the AFC t- team a couple times, and you know, I had a blast. Uh, I don't know how much it meant to him, but I. I was really proud of that fact and proud of the fact that I was on the same team as my brother. And uh, he actually, I tried when uh, the Browns weren't going to re-sign him, I tried to get him down in Houston. And I mean, the guy could still play. He was 40 years last year. They moved him inside backer and was playing great and was still rushing the passer. And, um, you know, I'm like, dude, Come down to the Oilers, man. We could use you. And, uh, you know, by then he was, I think he'd had enough. (laughs) Um, Let me ask you something about uh, your your father. I mean, he preceded his two sons in the NFL, and and he set a pretty high bar for performance. Was there a hope or an expectation on, on his part that his two sons would play in the NFL? And, And also, by the same token, was there a hope or expectation that the sons of you and Clay would also play in the NFL? Well, really, my dad's only expectation was if you start something, you're not going to quit it. And that really was uh, his rule throughout. And then secondly, whatever the coach told you, and lastly, if you're going to go out there, you're going to play full speed. Or he'd always say, I'll come out there and snatch you off the field if you aren't doing any one of those three. So it was very simple. Um, no, we didn't have to play. Uh, we were all very competitive, all our brothers and sisters, and um, enjoyed competing. But at the same time, never felt pressure from our dad. Um, he he really set a good example of like integrity and hard work and um, and and really once my brother came along, I was who I aspired to be like. So um, I had two amazing role models in my family. So and the same thing holds true. I mean, Clay tell you the same thing for his kids. 
you know, if you want to play, great. If you don't, that's fine, too. And, um, yeah, our family's definitely been blessed, especially in football. And, um, you know, the kids love it. They they love being Matthews and kind of being the next generation. So, Bruce, you're talking to three uh, Hall of Fame voters here. Uh, if you could, in a minute or two, uh Make could you make the case for your brother for us? Why is he a Hall of Famer? Why does he belong in the Hall of Fame? He produced for 19 years, and he didn't just produce one dimensionally as a linebacker. And, um, you know, he he still ended up with 80 something sacks. I think he had, but that that only tells the story of a small part of his career. Uh, I think his first five years, he rarely got to rush past him. And then they finally cut him loose, and he had like uh, 12 and a half, 13 sacks. And then after that, guys realized, and he at least got more opportunities to uh, get after the passer. But um, my brother was great in coverage. Um, he was played the run very physically. Um, and it, he, he truly was an all-around player. And I think in a lot of ways, uh, the sack numbers kind of suffered as a result. That if, if he had rushed the pass exclusively, I, I think no question he would be in already. And I think the only thing that's not in his favor was the fact that he was so versatile. Um, but you look at his stats, his interceptions, Bumbles force, tackles. I mean, everything is up there. And he not only did it for a long time, but he did it for 19 years. The, played the most games by a linebacker. So I, I know I'm biased, but I know there's a lot of guys who uh, b- believe what I believe about my brother and that should, he should be in the Hall of Fame. Bruce, thanks so much for joining us. And please tell your brother... He owes you a debt of gratitude for the three three votes he just got. That was terrific. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Great. That was Hall of Famer Bruce Matthews. Up next is the Two Minute Drill. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, we're almost through with our number one, so you know what that means. That's the two-minute warning. Yep, it's the two-minute drill, and I've got it this week. So let's get started. Why is TMZ so much better than the NFL finding surveillance videos? A little money goes a long way in the film world. (laughs) Uh, Because TMZ turns those films into money, not headaches, as the NFL would have. Absolutely. Who dropped the ball here, guys? Kareem Hunt. Exactly right. Blame the kicker, not the holder. (laughs) So why doesn't the NFL launch an investigation to see if that ball was deflated? Because, Clark, the NFL is more concerned with the product on the field than off. (laughs) Plus, they already caught the deflator-in-chief. I have no idea what you're talking about, Ron. <laughs> There's a video of Buffalo's Jerry Hughes accosting an official after last weekend's game. Who sees it first, the NFL or TMZ? ESPN. <laughs> <laughs> I say TMZ. The NFL can't find what it's not looking for. 
What would TMZ find if it had a videotape of our Hall of Fame debates? No first ballot Hall of Famers. <laughs> the Lincoln-Douglas debates with helmets. <laughs> yeah. Well, Goose mentioned Kareem Hunt earlier. Where does Kareem Hunt wind up next? <laughs> and before he goes there, counseling. <laughs> if you were a GM, would you take a chance on the guy? No, I believe in character. With character comes accountability. Exactly. I would not because you're not taking a chance. You're asking for trouble. Mike McCarthy was fired after last week's loss. Fair or foul? Foul. 28 games ago, he had the Packers in the NFC title game. Fair. When you've lost 12 of the last 18, with two of those wins coming in overtime, and you fired a guy for fumbling that kickoff, what goes around comes around. Next coach in Cleveland, Bruce Arians, Mike McCarthy, Urban Meyer, or Condoleezza Rice? If they hope to maximize Baker Mayfield, it's Mike Mertz. Ooh, Mike Martz, blast from the past, friend of the show. I say Bruce Arians, the quarterback whisperer, will be in the ear of Baker Mayfield. <laughs> yeah. That's the end of the that's the end of our first hour, but don't go anywhere. We have Scott Hansen of the Red Zone and former defensive coordinator Tom Bass, who was on Oahu on December 7, 1941. They're coming up, so stay where you are, because you're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Welcome back to hour number two of the Talk of Fame Network. In the next 60 minutes, we're going to hear from the NFL Network's Scott Hansen better known as the host of the Red Zone Channel, uh, former defense coordinator Tom Bass, who was on Oahu on December 7th, 1941. And we're going to hear from our own Mr. Rick Goslin, a.k.a. Dr. Data, who has something to say about officiating. Goose, so do I. Ugh. <laughs> but first, guys, uh, some historical achievements. I'm talking about what happened Monday night in a game that Larry Michael, in fact, intended, and that was Adrian Peterson tying the great Jim Brown with 106 career rushing touchdowns on a 90-yard touchdown run, the longest of his career. And you know what? He was running away from the guys chasing Goose. I thought running backs were supposed to slow down as they got farther away from 30. What's going on here? Well, there are exceptions, and the exceptions are the backs with some size, like Hall of Famers John Riggins and John Henry Johnson. Peterson is a big back with speed. He had an 80-yard touchdown run at the age of 30. The 92-yarder came at the age of 32, and let me say this. The injury-ravaged Philadelphia secondary didn't exactly have Usain Bolt and the Jamaican relay team trying to chase him down. <laughs> That's the way I saw it. The defense was slowing down. He wasn't picking up speed. Uh, but, but, Clark, do me one favor. Don't ever again say Adrian Peterson and Jim Brown in the same sentence, please. I'm begging you. 
<laughs> first ballot Hall of Famer. Yeah, yeah, yeah first ballot Hall of Famer. Hey, Ronnie, we, we had him on our show once, you remember? We did. Yeah, I did. And you we remember did. what he said? He said Out he wanted to retire as the all-time leading rusher? Yeah. The way he looks now, I wouldn't put it past him. Uh, well, I would put it past him. He's 33, and he's 5,600 yards away from Emmett Smith, I believe. So I would put it past him, uh, way past him, as a matter of fact. Uh, but look, as they say down south, he done good. Uh, <laughs> major, you know, he's had a great career, no matter what happens from here. And it certainly looks like uh, he's rejuvenated himself uh, somehow or other. Yeah, and, and Goose, I know what you said earlier, but how do you explain it? I mean, he left the Vikings, had a cup of coffee with New Orleans, did nothing in Arizona. Now, now this behind an offensive line that's been held together by bailing wire. Well, he knows this is his last call. He makes the most of it. Whatever he gets here in Washington is what he's going to finish with. The guy he should focus on is Eric Dixon. 128 yards, he can move past him into eighth spot. Right. Adrian Peterson, keep on trucking. We'll see you in Canton someday. Sorry, Goose. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Hey, before we go farther, guys, I'd like to pass this along. For the second straight year, and what I think is the sixth or seventh time in the past 15 years, our Christmas tree fell. True story. <laughs> happened this morning, as a matter of fact. Fortunately, our daughter wasn't here. That would have caused more chaos than we already had and all more than we need. But uh, remarkably, no ornaments were broken. I'm not sure how that happened, but it did. So uh, I guess my question to you guys, Ron, I'll start with you. Have you ever experienced this before? Well, this won't surprise you, Clark. You've known me a long time. Never, never once my tree stands solid as the great sequoias of California, staunchly guarding my Did you family. Nail it to the, the floor. <laughs> it refuses to fall down because it knows I will fling it into the fireplace, and it'll Gee. be gone in a minute. Come to our place, would you please, Goose? You ever had this happen before? Yeah, I think it toppled once when I was a kid, and it may have had something to do with some horseplay between my brother and I, but that was so long ago, it's so hard to remember. No problem the last several decades, though. I'm a big fan of artificial trees. <laughs> oh, no. I feel so much better now. painful. Oh, you know, we, we've tried four different tree holders, and I know because I counted them before we put this tree up, and, and none of them work. So hey, what are we doing wrong here, Goose? Uh, I, in lieu of the uh, artificial tree, what do you suggest? Well, I use the same stand every year. I hold the same tree every year, and it's never fallen over. Adopt my philosophy. <laughs> well, I'm going to help you out here, Clark. The greatest <laughs> oh, tree holder ever made, made in the USA. Get rid of whatever the hell it is you're using there that was manufactured in Beijing or Budapest. And get yourself a <laughs> jack post, welded steel, Christmas tree stand with four bolts, made in the USA since 1964. <laughs> jack post, welded steel, Christmas tree holder. <laughs> It'll never fall again. Are they sponsoring this segment, Ron? <laughs> they should be. Actually, they should be. Where'd you get this oh. thing, whatever this piece of plastic is? Where'd you get this thing? Target or yeah. something? Well, well, thanks. I, I appreciate that. Thanks. We're going out and get one right after the, we finish uh, taping this program. <laughs> hey, one other thing, guys. Uh, I, there's a big game this weekend in Atlanta. Big game. It's really? between Atlanta and Portland. And, and I know what you're saying. Huh? Ron's going, what? Portland? What? Uh, no. 
It's the MLS championship between Atlanta United and the Portland Timbers. And I mention that because my nephew, that would be Merritt Paulson, whom you both have met. Yes, sir. He runs the Portland Timbers. And I also mentioned because they're going to draw more people. Yes, I said more people and a lot more people than the Atlanta Falcons did last weekend. They're expecting 72 Ks. That's 72,000, which is what they had for their last playoff game. It's Sunday. It's on national TV. And are either of you going to look in? Ron, you going to watch uh, it? I, I am probably not, but I'll bet many members of ICE will be there uh, look, <laughs> looking in the stands at some of those fans. <laughs> they probably bought 30 or 40 tickets themselves. <laughs> Wait, ICE, is that, is that the cast from Frozen? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I can't believe they're having a big game in Atlanta. I didn't even think that was huge. allowed anymore. Oh, no, it's huge. Goose, you going to be watching? Clark, unless it turns up on the red zone that afternoon, I won't see a single corner kick. <laughs> Can you imagine Scott Hansen doing one of those? Oh, my God. <laughs> We're going to Montreal. Look at that. Oh, it's close. <laughs> anyway, uh, anyway, I'm going to be watching it. I'm going to watch it. Really interested to see what happens. Um, also, by the way, interested to see what happens with Urban Meyer. He's going to leave Ohio State after the Rose Bowl. And Goose, he says he doesn't intend to coach anymore, that this is it. He's retiring. But I know we've heard that before. Um do you think we see him again, and do you think we see him maybe in the pros? No, I think he's done. He's had health issues on his last two stops, and I've always said the best college jobs are better than 90% of the NFL jobs. You know, college schedules are littered with cupcakes, not so in the NFL. In college, Alabama or Ohio State, 10-2 and two are your bad years. No matter how good you are in the NFL, you lose games. Urban's health and his good name do not need the NFL. Goose, I heard you mention Alabama and Ohio State among those good coaching jobs. I didn't hear Michigan State. <laughs> they I was being modest. <laughs> they still play football. It's a, it's a basketball school, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. They play hockey. Soccer. Ron, Were you talking about soccer? Final yeah, four, final right. four, that's soccer. Right. That's right. Yeah. There you go. Um, well, Ron, let's just say he doesn't coach again. Let's just right. say Goose is right, he doesn't coach again. Because Goose is always right. Um, but let's say he doesn't. Because I know he does have, as Goose says, some serious health issues he's dealing with. What's his legacy then? Well, uh, Goose man and some others may not like this, but his legacy, as far as I'm concerned, is two national titles of Florida and over 30 players arrested. One national title and an 82-9 record at Ohio State, but a boatload of angst, a domestic abuse scandal on his own coaching staff that he clearly ignored and then tried to claim he didn't know anything about, and more player conduct problems. He's a Bible-thumping guy who seems to have sold his soul to the devil in exchange for big-time college football success. Unfortunately, quote Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, no man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will hold to the one and despise the other. He cannot serve God and mammon. You also cannot serve the Bible and your playbook. It's just, they don't work, man. I mean, for me, he won. He obviously knows how to recruit players, and he knows how to coach them. But he recruited a lot of guys uh, that probably should have been in reformatories, not universities. Ron, does that mean you're not going to be presenting him for the College Football Hall of Fame? <laughs> it's probably a good chance that that won't be happening. Probably, probably a good chance. Um, one other question for you, Ron. I heard what Goose said earlier about uh, the pros. He thinks this is it. Right. Could you see the Browns trying to make a serious run at him, trying to convince him to come out of retirement and coach them? Yeah, I mean, I could see them try. Sure. I mean, you know, look, he's a huge name in, in Ohio. He's a, you know, a sort of hometown boy type candidate. You know, they'd be very excited about that. He's got the tremendous track record as a, as a winning coach. Um, so yeah, uh, but I think Goose is right as he usually is, especially when we're talking Big Ten. Um, right. 
you know, he's 60 years old, I think, give or take. And, uh, you know, he's been in the hospital a number of times with his health issues. I just think it's, it's uh, he probably knows it's time for leaving. Let me well, say this. I, I think the next coach for every NFL team will need to be a quarterback whisperer. Can you name one great quarterback Meyer has produced at either Florida or Ohio State? Cardale Jones? Tim Tebow? Who? Yeah. No, you're exactly right. You're exactly right. I, I mean, he was ideal for the college percent. game. Guess Goose won't be presenting him either. <laughs> <laughs> well, Goose is right as usual. He's absolutely right. Well, you know, Urban Meyer may be leaving, but I'll tell you someone who never leaves. Fortunately for us, and that's our Rick Goslin you just heard from, a.k.a. Dr. Data. And he's here with more stats figures and, well, data to help you through the season. And this week, he's about to target my favorite complaint with the NFL. Goose, let her rip. The Bill Venovich officiating crew missed a blatant false start by the L.A. Chargers on Monday night that resulted in a 46-yard touchdown pass from Philip Rivers and Travis Benjamin that triggered the Chargers' comeback against the Steelers. It turns out that's one of the few penalty flags NFL officiating crews didn't throw last weekend. Officials assessed a season-high 260 penalties for a season-high 2,400 yards in the 16 games last weekend. That's 24 football fields that were walked off by the guys in the striped shirts last weekend. Not exactly must-see TV. The 260 penalties were the most by NFL officiating crews since the second week of the 2015 season. I've always believed that the fewer the flags, the better the game. The NFL obviously doesn't share my perspective. The result is a complete lack of consistency from one week to the next, from one officiating crew to the next. The crews of Vinovich and Sean Hockley have both officiated 11 games this season. But the Hockley crew has assessed 74 more penalties for almost 700 more yards. The Vinovich crew has assessed 123 penalties this season. The Hockley crew has assessed 108 penalties against the road teams alone. So Vinovich has worked 11 games involving 22 teams. His crew has assessed 10-plus penalties for 100-plus yards to only one of those 22 teams. Hockley's crew has assessed 10-plus penalties to nine teams, 100-plus yards to six teams. Again, where's the consistency? Vinovich has worked one Buffalo game and assessed three penalties for 20 yards against the Bills. Hockley has worked two Buffalo games and assessed a combined 23 penalties for 222 yards against the Bills. So what is the Hockley crew seeing each week that the Vinovich crew isn't? The NFL has a great game. It's too bad NFL officials won't give the players the freedom to play it anymore. Well, Goose, you know, in, in 30 seconds or less, uh, there's no way Buffalo commits four times as many penalties in one game as another. So what does the league do about this, if anything, and do they even keep track? Absolutely nothing. This, this has been, I've been tracking penalties for, for years, and it's been an ongoing problem for the last decade. Goose, thanks for that. Good to know that Bill Vinovich can't whistle us for a delay of fame. Lucky us. Up next is someone who never has a delay. That's the NFL Network, Scott Hansen. He's coming up right after this. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Most of you watch the NFL on Sunday, and I presume a lot of you watch the NFL Red Zone. I know I do. In fact, I never miss it. And Goose, I think you don't miss it too, right? Yes, sir. Well, my wife will tell me sometimes to turn on the Giants, and I always say... Why should I turn on the Giants when I can watch every game at once? <laughs> it's, it's unreal. It's seven hours around-the-clock coverage. 
and it's orchestrated by our next guest. That would be NFL Network, Scott Hansen. Now, Scott joins us today from L.A., and Scott, first things first, how did you get this job, and what did you think when they first told you exactly what it would entail? Yeah, well, first of all, Clark, Rick, Ron, good to be with you guys. And I'll take those questions in inverse order if I can, because <laughs> I heard this is our 10th season, and I heard 10 summers ago that NFL Network was going to start this NFL Red Zone channel. And it was going to be, you know, whip around and have all the games and everything. And I just pictured it in my mind's eye, and I said, man, if this thing gets produced right, it's absolutely going to crush it. It's going to be a hit because I'd be the guy. We've all covered the game for years, right? And I was a roving reporter for NFL Network before I got the hosting role for NFL Red Zone. So they would send me to wherever, Foxborough or Soldier Field or wherever, and I'd be in the press box, and I'd be watching the live game on the field in front of me, but I'd have my laptop open, and I'd be the guy on press row who'd be elbowing the people next to me saying, yeah, 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 we're watching the Patriots right here, but Brett Favre just threw his fourth touchdown at Lambeau field. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know we're watching this game right now, but Tony Romo's on, on a fourth quarter comeback right now. And I always felt like, why Why couldn't there be something where you could take people, bang, here's where here's where the hot action is, here's where it's going on right now, and, and get it live. Uh, so so I, when I first heard that it was coming up, I called up one of our uh, talent coordinators, a guy by the name of Jamie Heeman, and I said, hey, Jamie, I said, is it true that we're starting up NFL Red Zone? He said, yeah. I said, who you got to host it? He says, well, we're looking around. I said, is my name on the list? And he goes, yeah, your name's on the list. They, they had already kind of discovered, I guess, my enthusiasm and energy. <laughs> and uh, the rest of the story uh, goes like this. They brought, brought me in for an audition. Now, the audition for television, traditionally an audition for television, is 10 minutes long. They put you up on a set, and they want to see how you look and how you sound. The NFL Red Zone audition, because it's a seven-hour show with no commercials, they wanted to test out stamina for the candidate. We did a five-hour nonstop oh. audition. <laughs> I, I flop sweated through a suit in, in, in the middle of summer and, and didn't know what was coming next because what they did was they just took random games from the year prior and, and just basically queued them up to the kickoff and hit play on eight different machines at the same time and said, talk. <laughs> and uh, I guess I, I did well enough that they said, you know what, Hanson, you're, you're our guy, and uh, here we are ten years later. Oh, they made the right choice. Let me ask you this, Scott. Uh, what were you like as a kid? I mean, you were a talkative kid. Were you a sports geek? Did you ever get in trouble in class? Did you ever have a fear of public speaking? What, did you have that energy as a kid? What were you like? That's interesting. I've never been – I've done a lot of these type of interviews. I've never been asked that question, but i got a funny story for you. Um, I was the, the talker. I mean, imagine that. I was the talker in class. Uh, in fact, there's kind of an infamous story in my family where in fourth grade, my teacher, Mrs. Wright uh, – or, or actually, Mrs. Rue was my teacher in fourth grade. But uh, I talked so much, and they tried to discipline me. They tried to do everything they could to stop me from talking with my classmates. They said the last thing – our last resort is this. We're going to move Scott's desk to the corner of the classroom, the back corner. And the only person we're going to put next to him is Danielle Wright. Now, Danielle Wright was the girl in my class who never said three words a semester, right? The, the, the super, super introverted, shy kid in the class. By the end of that semester, Danielle Wright was getting conduct reports sent home to her parents. Because I had perverted her. I, I twisted her. I corrupted her, whatever 
whatever you want to say. But, uh, yeah, I love to have a good time, and I love to talk about whatever whatever was on my mind. I love to talk about it back then. And, and the other little aspect about my life that, that my mom reminds me of is when I was a little kid, I used to watch, and I grew up, I mean, I'm, I'm in my 40s here, so I grew up with ABC, NBC, and CBS, right? Those were your choices for television. And there'd be a game on, on CBS and a game on NBC. They used to have the NFC and, and, and AFC packages, respectively. So I would put the living room TV on the CBS game, and I would drag my dad's television from the den into the living room, put a long, you know, long cable there to, to, to bring it out, and I would watch two games simultaneously. And then I grew up in the Detroit area. If the Lions game was going on, I'd put the Lions game on the radio. So I would multitask as a little kid. So my mom says, Scott, you were born to do what you do now on NFL Red Zone. Wow. That's right. <laughs> Scott, pretty... give me the logistics. How many monitors are there in the studio, and how big are they? Yeah, okay, so I stand. You guys, when you, when you watch NFL Red Zone, you see me behind the desk, and it's all a slick production with a green screen background and all that. But that's, yeah. that's a little bit of Hollywood action right there because I only stand there at the beginning and the end of the show. As soon as I go off camera, I walk around the front of the desk, and there is a wall of monitors. I stand about three feet, two, three feet away from a wall of monitors for the better part of the seven hours. And they're divided up. It's, they're like 60-inch screens divided up into however many boxes that we need. If we've got nine games on, they, they put it into like a Brady Bunch, you know, uh, quadrant of, of nine games. And I sit there and watch all of those. And then I have a researcher and a spotter sitting immediately next to me with laptops open in case, whatever, Cam Newton throws an interception and I don't know who number 22 for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers is, they can get me that guy's name and, and uh, information real quick. And then it's just rock and roll. I put my earpiece in, my producer's talking in my ear, and we bounce our eyes around eight, nine monitors for all those hours and basically ask this question. If I was a neutral fan and I didn't care about any one particular favorite team and I was looking at this wall of monitors, where would my eyes land? And wherever that answer is, is where we try and take our audience at any given time. Wow. Scott, I, I, I'm wondering, as I'm listening to you talk about about this, do you understand that, that like that like NFL running backs, the life expectancy for your job is probably a lot shorter than it is for a punter <laughs> or a weatherman in your case? I mean, how long can you do, do you know something like this? With you? Do you know who else agrees with you? Because, yeah, it is. It's like I, I've often wondered, okay, could I really sit in this seat for this long? Because the – energy, enthusiasm, knowledge of the game, and stamina, uh, and then, quite frankly, bladder integrity. Exactly. Uh, the demands <laughs> of the job. So I was saying, you know who else agrees with you? I was getting ready to do an interview with Roger Goodell. <laughs> he was out here at NFL Studios in Los Angeles a uh, handful of seasons ago. And like everyone else, he, he watches NFL Red Zone when he's not at an individual game. Of course, he's the commissioner. He's got to keep an eye on everything, so he'll, he'll watch NFL Red Zone. Uh, so he comes and he's and he's like Scott. I got a question. We were in the makeup room. We we're getting ready to do the interview, and we're in the makeup room, and you know, get our makeup on. He's like Scott. I got to ask. He's like, how do you do it? How do you how do you stay strong for seven hours? I'm like, well, Roger, I just you know I value my profession more than I do my own physical uh, limitations. And he looks at me and he goes. 
Scott, you ain't going to be able to do this job into your 60s. <laughs> exactly right. <laughs> he goes, take it from me. And I knew exactly what it, to, which he, to what he was referring. And I said, Roger, I can only hope that medical science catches up with the male physiology by then. <laughs> exactly. We had a pretty good laugh over that. There's a moment when that will be it. <laughs> <laughs> Scott, how much prep work do you have to do for a week of football? Oh, I'm sitting here doing this interview right now with a stack of papers in front of me. Um, on Tuesday night, we have we have the best research department in the business for my money. NFL Network researchers are just phenomenal. They're grinding since the last game. Uh, we're really since the Sunday games end, and then the Sunday night game and the Monday night games end. They put together about a 200-page packet every week that kind of puts a button on last week's game and look ahead to this weekend's games. I'll get that emailed to me on Tuesday night. Then I start looking through that on Wednesday. I, on t- on uh, Thursday, I do my own spreadsheets. I like to, like a chef, I don't want to just oversee other people cooking the dishes. I like to put my fingers in the dough myself. So I do my own spreadsheets with quarterback stats, kicker stats, touchdown stats, offensive team offense, team defense, turnovers, things like that. And I just, I put them together. I've been doing it for years. And it gives me a, a general overview of, okay, who's really performing well? What are trends? What are some milestones that we could be looking at uh, for the games coming up? It, it's a little bit like this to, to prep. Uh, if you go back to your college days and you had a professor who said, okay, final exam is on Friday. It's an essay exam. Here's a list of 10 essay questions. Three of them are going to be on the final exam. Well, which three do you study? If you're a diligent student, you study all 10 of them. And it's sort of like that with me. I've got eight games in the early window this upcoming Sunday. I've got five games in the late window. I'll be dealing with 13 games. I don't know which one's going to have the fantastic finish. I don't know which one's going to have the controversial coaching decision. I don't know which one's going to have the quarterback throw for five touchdowns being his career high. But one of them or two of them or three of them are going to have that. So I try and prepare for all of them and then uh, jump on the surfboard and let the waves (laughs) ride me in. And we see what happens on Sunday. Scott, quick question. We've got 20 seconds. What's the first thing you do when it's 8.01 Eastern and you finally get to kick back from seven hours of coverage? <laughs> as soon as the show ends, I pop out my earpiece. And, and this is not being melodramatic here, guys. I pop out my earpiece and I have to steady myself on the desk, literally because I've had stimulation in my left ear for seven straight hours. Game broadcast, my producer, the graphics, the director, everything going, going, going. It's almost dizzying to go to a silent room afterwards. <laughs> uh, then I might just go down the hallway, take a trip to the men's room, jump in my car, go home, and I'm a junkie. I plop myself on the couch, grab some food and a beverage, and I watch Sunday Night Football because I don't want to miss anything in any game. You are literally talking to one of the guys who says he watches. There have been about 190 games so far this year. I've watched every one of them so far. Wow. Wow. Scott, thanks so much for the time. Thanks for the energy. And guaranteed, (laughs) we'll be watching Sunday. We will. Oh, I love it, guys. Thank you so much. Appreciate the support. And for all your uh, listeners, we'll see you on Sunday for seven hours of commercial-free football. (laughs) Take care, guys. There you go. Thank you. That was the NFL Network, Scott Anson. Up next is former defense coordinator Tom Bass. You're listening to the Talk Fame Network.
This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, this Friday is December 7th, and that date always resonates with me, as I'm sure it does with a lot of you, because it's the anniversary of the bombing of Pearl Harbor. Now, that happened 77 years ago on December 7th, 1941, a date, as FDR said, that will live in infamy. And while none of us was there... Our next guest was. He's former defense coordinator Tom Bass, a.k.a. Boss Hogg, who was one of the <laughs> finest individuals I've known, at least, while covering the league for almost four decades. Now, Tom joins us today from San Diego, where I covered him way back when, to tell us what it was like. And, and Tom, I know you were a child who lived there, a young kid, I think, who lived there somewhere around, I'm guessing, six years old. Um, first yep. of all, what were you doing there? Was your dad in the military? And if so, where was he stationed? Yeah, my my father was in the Air Force, Army Air Corps, uh, in those days, and uh, we were he was stationed, and we were living on Hickam Air Force mm-hmm. Base, right across from Pearl Harbor. Okay. Well, speaking of that, I remember when I was covering the charges and talking to you one day, you telling me that you were outside playing that morning when the f- planes flew over. Um, how vividly do you recall that morning, and what do you remember most about it? You know, I don't remember a lot about as sick being when I was six, but I do remember that day. I'll, uh, I'll never forget it. My b- older brother and I, Jim, were outside playing uh, Sunday morning. Mom was making breakfast, and uh, this plane came really low over the house, and we looked up, and there was a big red circle on the wings, and we didn't know what that was, and then we started hearing the explosions, which we thought it was the Navy just shooting their guns off. Hey, Tom, did, did you know anyone or your parents know anyone who was killed? And what happened to you and your family in the yeah, my, aftermath? My, yeah, my dad knew a lot of people that were killed. You know, he he worked right on the line, uh, uh, was a master sergeant. And so, uh, you know, it, it was a, a really difficult time because we ran inside, my brother and I, and yelled to my dad. My dad looked out the window and knew right away what was going on. And so he had us get all the mattresses and put them uh, in the hall walls. And we hunkered down, my mom and uh, my two brothers and I, uh, you know, for about three hours while the attack went on. Uh, and, you know, being young kids, my my brother Jim was two years older than I, we kept peeking, peeking out the window. And we were living right across from the motor pool, and, and they blew it completely up. Oh, jeez. So it, it was... Uh, it was a trying time for three hours, uh, you know, not knowing what was going to go on. And uh, basically, we had a guy come and said, you know, we're going to try to get you out of here in a half hour, get as much stuff as you can carry. And uh, mom packed up, you know, got us to get some clothes and stuff. And as we were leaving the house, we looked, went out through the kitchen in the back, and uh, we looked at our refrigerator, and it had about 
15 bullet holes in it. So <laughs> I guess we were pretty lucky. I don't know. <laughs> How long did it take you to get over the trauma of that day? Um, probably about three hours, something like that. I don't know. I, I, I didn't feel that I was traumatized by it. I think my mom was was the worst because when they put us on the truck to take us off the base, uh, they gave my mom four uh, gas masks and a forty five automatic. <laughs> I don't think she was real happy about that. Jeez. <laughs> oh, I'm not sure what she was supposed to do with either the gas mask or the, the automatic. But they took us up to Polly and kind of got us situated uh, in a tent-like situation for a while. And Actually, our family was pretty lucky because my mom and dad both played uh, with Hilo Hattie's band. And so we were very familiar with a number of uh, Hawaiian families. And uh, we got to stay with one for uh, about a, uh, four or five weeks, you know, uh, before we returned to the base. What, you, you know, during that uh, day, Tom, as, as things were going on, I mean, I, I assume you could see all this billowing smoke that we see in the old. Oh, yeah. And, and, I mean, that must you be know, the worst thing was The worst thing was looking across the, the parade ground to where the chapel was. And they, had, you know, there were services going on, and, and they hit that pretty hard. That was, that was really burning bad, man. Uh, I, I can remember vividly that in the motor pool, just you know, just going up in things. So we were, we were, uh, you know, in a situation where no one knew if they were going to land on the island or whatever. And that, the, probably the next twenty-four hours was a little iffy all the way around. Sure. Um, each year when December 7th uh, rolls around, uh, I, I would think that all those memories would come uh, rushing back for you. Is that sort of what happens? Yeah, it really is. And, and what I feel bad about is, you know, uh, in, in some ways, it's going to be the kids that were there that are going to be the ones that are going to have to bring the memory back because so many of the the actual people that participated in the defense of the island are gone. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. Um, Tom, let me ask you this. I mean, I, I was a kid at six who lived in Hawaii. We lived in Oahu, but that was in 1956. It was, it was uh, 15 yeah. years later. And, and um, I'm just wondering, you know, when you have something like this happen, what was the immediate aftermath for your family? I mean, did you guys pick up and leave Oahu? Did you go to another island? Did you go back to the mainland? What happened to your dad? What happened afterwards? And, and, and also, how did your parents explain to you what just happened in the harbor? I mean, I know you were out of Hickam, but down in Pearl Harbor, yeah. how did they explain what happened to you and what you were about to or what your family was about to uh, experience? Well, you know, mom was the, the calm one in the group, and uh, 
as I said, we were off base for about five weeks, and then they got us back to our house and everything, but we couldn't go to school. And so uh, from December till June, uh, we just ran around the base, you know, and into, you know, air raid shelters and all that stuff, and really uh, kind of had the run of the place for a while. Um, uh, it it was hard because my dad was gone most of the time. Uh, but when he'd be home, you know, he kind of told us what was going on. And then finally they notified my parents that we were going to go. They were going to get us back to the mainland. Uh, and, you know, that was something that... Uh, we hadn't seen very much of. I was born at March Air Force Base, and immediately we went over to Hawaii. Uh, so, you know, this was going to be a new trip for us. And they put us on a troop ship with a, hundreds of other little kids and <laughs> took us 13 days to get from Honolulu to San Francisco uh, in a you know, a big convoy. So that was that, that was kind of a wild time. Tom, there have been several movies made about that day, uh, Tora, 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 from Here to Eternity, and, and more recently Pearl Harbor. Yeah. Have you watched any of those, and did they bring back memories, or was it just Hollywood? I, I've watched Tora, Tora, Tora because I, I think it was, uh, you know, probably... One of those days that you just can't forget. I mean, uh, thankfully, uh, it, the the immediate people that lived around us, uh, all of them seemed to get through it, uh, even though, you know, they blew Hickam up pretty good. But... Uh, it, it It's kind of funny because... In some ways, you resent what happened because you feel it could have been avoided if people had been on their toes a little bit better. And then at the same time, it changed everything for us. I mean, we didn't, I didn't see my dad very much until the war was over. Uh, so, uh, you know, it, we had to go through that. My little brother didn't hadn't seen my my dad at all. He's five years younger than me, so um, you know that was a big transition for our family when Dad came home. You know, it's like when football season's over and you come home and your kid tell your kids tell you you got thirty days to integrate back in the family. You know? so. Yeah, exactly. There you go. There you go. Do you remember? You know, it's, uh, do you remember, Tom, what what you thought the first you know once it was over, uh, what you thought the first time you saw the harbor there and, and all those boats sunk, or did you not see them? I I, I didn't see them until I went back and uh, later on in life and and took the tour and everything. Uh, my dad told me that he you know he, he didn't hold anything back. I mean, he said what had happened and. And he said that, you know, the, the guys at Pearl really got it uh, bad. And uh, so uh, it, it 
weird thing to go back there. Uh, I'll tell you that. I, it is for me. And I did that for a number of years when I was on the selection committee for the Hula Bowl. We'd go back every year. So, And both my parents are uh, very punchful. Oh, oh yeah. Yeah, I've, I've been up there. As I said, we used to live there. What a view of the city. I mean, it's a sad place, but what oh, a view of the city. Isn't it gorgeous? Yeah. It's a great it place. It's also a very but nice when, when you when you first drive in there, you just can't imagine how many people. I, I know the first time I went to Normandy to the, to the cemetery there, I mean, it, to see all those crosses is, is overwhelming. I mean, yeah. It's a site every American should have to do, go to. We took our our two kids there and made sure that they saw it. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, Bosser, thanks so much for the time. Great to speak with you again. It's been way too long. And, and we'll resume our conversation when I sit down with you and Nick out in San Diego, okay? Yes. Group, I, I miss you. You know, it's, uh, be, between you and Doom coming into my office, it was uh, <laughs> a wonderful time. Uh, Thanks so much, Tom. Thank you. That was former defense coordinator Tom Bass. Up next is the Two Minute Drill. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio from the O'Reilly Auto Parts Studios. Here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. We're almost out of time, so Shay, get Bill Vinovich to do what he did last week, huh? Blow the whistle. That's the two minute warning. There, that's better. It's the two minute drill. So, gentlemen, start your engines. Best backup quarterback, Nick Foles, Ryan Fitzpatrick, Chase Daniel, or OBJ? Earl Morrill. <laughs> That's a good one. Colin Kaepernick, best unemployed backup quarterback. <laughs> Bill Belichick versus Adam Thielen. How should pay-per-view promote it? The Viking versus the Patriot. Lee Erickson versus Paul Revere. Ooh, good one. The Cheater versus the Truth. <laughs> Ron Borges versus Rick Goslin. How should pay-per-view promote that? East versus West. Boston versus Dallas. Big government versus big cattle. <laughs> Portuguese man of war versus Dr. Data. <laughs> <laughs> Whose defense is more vulnerable? The Chiefs, the Bengals, or Marriott? The Chiefs and Bengals never gave up $500 million as easily as Marriott did. <laughs> exactly. Marriott has no defense. And all, not, and they had my passport number. Not good. <laughs> not good. <laughs> Lamar Jackson, Joe Jackson, Andrew Jackson, or the Jackson Five? Bo Jackson. Ooh, ooh, excellent. But I say Janet Jackson with uniform malfunction. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Aaron Rodgers won't have a role in choosing the next Packers coach. True or false? False. If you had a hand in the firing, you have a hand in the hiring. Exactly. Played a starring role in creating the opening, so now he's got to fill it. And who will that coach be? Josh McDaniels, Lincoln Riley, Urban Meyer, or Condoleezza Rice? Anybody but you, Jackson. (laughs) Josh McDaniels, he'd rather coach a 35-year-old quarterback than an errant, a 45-year-old quarterback. (laughs) One game, it's the butt fumble. The next, a butt fumble recovery. Is Mark Sanchez destined to be the butt of all NFL jokes? But who else? <laughs> no, just the jokes that involve playing quarterback in the NFL. With the Grinch back in theaters, which NFLer should play the lead? Vontez Perfect. 
<laughs> Le'Veon Bell, at least in Pittsburgh. That's the end of the game. We'd like to thank Bruce Matthews, Tom Bascott, Hanson, and Larry Michael for joining us, Shay Raftis for producing us, and you for listening to us. If you'd like to hear this or any podcast, just go to our website, that'd be talkoffamenetwork.com. Or find us on iTunes or your podcast app. Otherwise, look for us next week on this station and at this time. We'll be here, and we hope you will be too.